This is Asia Insight, Asia Policy in a Pod. Hello and welcome everyone to this Asia Insight podcast by the National Bureau of Asian Research. My name is Michael Wills, Executive Vice President at NBR. In this episode, we'll be discussing the Chinese Communist Party's 20th Party Congress, which took place in Beijing from October 16th to the 23rd, and which confirmed Xi Jinping for a third uh, unprecedented term as General Secretary of the party. During the week-long conclave, which occurs once every five years, Xi Jinping opened with a two-hour speech praising China's triumph over the COVID-19 pandemic, successful suppression of political unrest in Hong Kong, and an overall message of continued progress toward the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. But he also highlighted the threats that China will face in the next five years, particularly challenges to domestic development and security, as well as pressure posed by foreign interference, presumably the United States, uh, on China's external environment. I'm joined here today by two colleagues at NBR who um, focus on Chinese politics and Chinese strategic ambitions and foreign policy. Uh, William McCahill has been a longtime member of our board of advisors. Um, before joining NBR, he worked uh, in Hong Kong and China, um, doing some guidance in international finance. And prior to that, had a 25-year career in the Foreign Service, which included diplomatic postings in Hong Kong, Taiwan, and Beijing. Um, and he finished his diplomatic career as chargé d'affaires at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing from 1996 to 2000. Uh, and our second guest, Nadege Roland, my colleague, who's a senior fellow for political and security affairs at NBR, um, and her research focuses on China's domestic foreign policy, defense policy, strategic ambitions, grand strategy. Uh, she has authored numerous publications for NBR uh, since joining us, uh, including on China's Belt and Road Initiative, China's vision for a new world order, uh, and China's strategic ambitions in Africa. Uh, like Bill, Nadej has a, a previous career in foreign service, in her case at the French Ministry of Defense. Bill, Nadej, welcome to Asia Insight. Thanks, Michael. Hi, Michael. Glad to be here. So let me start, thank you, by asking you both a question. Um, in, in the work report that she presented at the 20th Party Congress, he did lay out this sort of, you know, this idea that China was continuing to advance toward national rejuvenation, socialist modernization of the country. Um, what struck you as most interesting in his remarks? And what, are, what do you take away from that in terms of his um, his sense of strategic priorities and concerns that China will be facing in the years ahead. Bill, how about you first? Right. Thanks, Michael. Well, you, you started your introduction by mentioning Xi's speech, and mercifully, um, he spoke for only two, two and a quarter hours this time, and that was only half of his report. So, um, but in the full report, I think um, what stood out to me was sort of overall dark and almost defensive tone of it when you compare it to uh, C's report at the last such Congress, which was in 2017. Then in 2017, you had this sense that China was on the cusp of uh, uh, realizing great new opportunities in a world that was in a way more congenial to its rise. Remember, uh, one of Xi's quite consistent points has been that China's rise is inevitable and just as inevitable is the terminal decline of the West led by the United States. This year, however, um, the tone was much more of a China under threat and of um, uh, threats from all, all sides, uh, turbulent waters are one of the phrases that, um, uh, that Xi Jinping used. Um, and so it's, it's a kind of fortress China that emerges from this rather than a more outward looking um, ad advancing China. And connected with this is perhaps the most prominent word across the uh, 32,000 characters of the actual report, which is security. And she uh, speaks of a comprehensive national security, um, which really means um, security for the Communist Party and for Xi himself. Um, but of course, this emphasis on security, as opposed to previous emphases on economic growth, which we've seen in report after report for 
many years now in these party congresses. Um, that represents, to my mind, quite a quite a shift in emphases. And um, this focus on security, I think, is also borne out not only not only in the rest of the language of the of the report, um, but in some of the appointments that she has made. You'll notice that he's brought into the Politburo for the first time in a good long while, perhaps since the Mao period, um, the head of the security apparatus, uh, Chen Weidong, is, Chen Wenqing is his name. Uh, he, this is a career domestic spy. And here he is in the top echelons of the, um, of the party. In his more intimate circle, the Politburo Standing Committee, uh, we have Zhao Lijit, uh, who has been running uh, Xi's anti-corruption campaigns and who you might say was the, um, the man who orchestrated much of Xi's takeover of the Central Committee and finally the slate of new leaders that he's, that he's installed at the Congress. So it, in some respects, this kind of shift of emphasis from economic growth to security at any price really signals, and this might sound a bit dramatic, but it really signals the end of, of a kind of almost 40-year period, beginning with the Deng, the Deng reforms, where economic growth was, was the party's very first priority. And it almost seems to project a sense from Xi Jinping that um, China's had enough growth for a while, and uh, that now is a moment of consolidation, perhaps, of redistributing the wealth that's been acquired or built, rather. Um, and all of this he puts under his rubric of, of common prosperity, which we could discuss at some, some future point here. Thank you. Let me let me turn to Nadej uh, with, with the same question. And maybe Nadej, pick up a little bit on, on, on what Bill finished with there. Is this a moment of departure? I mean, a lot of what I take away from your work is, is sort of a continuity and a, a consistent strategic vision from Beijing that has uh, lasted through successive uh, general secretaries of the party. I mean, do you agree with, with Bill that this is this Congress marks a bit of a change with the way that Xi Jinping has, has described the challenges looking forward. Yeah, I think um, you know those those uh, reports and 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 congresses are very scripted. They are full of arcane formulations that we as analysts need to try to decipher to make sense of it all. Um, and their reflection on on the past, learning from what the party has done in the past five years, but also projecting, showing the direction to the to five coming years. Um, and this is not, to me, this is not radically different um, in the way that the new era was opened by Xi Jinping already. Um, and as, as Bill mentioned, the previous report was full of this um, hope, you know, that that uh, basically China would be on the on the shining hill and being the uh, you know the ready to realize its dreams and and rising um, while the West was declining. But I think that what we're seeing in this one. It's sort of a of the other face of that dream. You know, you have your hopes and dreams, but they're not necessarily the same as the current uh, system allows you to be or to become. So to, in order to achieve those dreams and fulfill this vision for yourself as a great power, you're going to have to. Uh, mobilize your population. And this is the sort of the sense of crisis, you know, threatening environment that Xi Jinping is conveying in this report. And that also Bill mentioned you know, this emphasis on security. We are in turbulent waters where there's a gathering storm. But where do these threats come from? Well, they, they also come, they come from within, perhaps. They come from foreign, foreign uh, hostile forces. They come from, you know, the efforts of um, 
unknown countries to undermine our rise. Um, and so in the face of those threats and gathering storms, uh, we need to be even stronger and, you know, we need to be united. And in, in, in addition to security, the second term that is repeated a lot is struggle. So this is not this realization of the dream is not going to happen by us just sitting down here, but we need to act on it. We need to 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 get into the struggle to get it. Thank you. Let me ask you to to follow up on that, Nadege. That's really interesting. Um, it strikes me that you know for the last ten years there's been a bit of a tension within China's portrayal of its its outward face. You know, you've had a uh, what was peaceful rise and then became sort of peace and development as, as China kind of grew in tension with a, a growing assertiveness on the international stage, you know, the rise of the wolf warrior diplomats that we've seen over the last few years. But those two things were sort of almost contradictory. Uh, it, would it be fair to say that that the emphasis on security, as you described, the emphasis on struggle, are we going to sort of see that now you, is Beijing released from having to kind of balance what it says on the one hand and what it does? Mm -hmm. Because now the words and actions are actually aligned. And, and will we see a continuation of this sort of much more assertive foreign policy? Well, that's that's a big question. You know, when when you read it and you think, uh, OK, we have you know, centralization of power in the hands of this person who has a sense, a very strong sense of where China should be and the rejuvenation of the nation, but also, again, uh, um, an increased sense of the tensions and frictions that this is going to create, because if you're going to rise, you're going to rise in competition against the existing dominant power. Um, and this is sort of the inevitability of China's rise goes together with the inevitability of conflict and rough waters, right? This is not going to happen uh, very easily. Um, so peaceful development was a way for uh, Beijing, the, the, the leadership, to both assess um, their strategic environment and their vision for sustaining a favorable strategic environment that would allow their uh, the development of their material power, um, economic and military mostly. And here um, we are uh, seeing something of a slightly different assessment of this strategic environment. There's no mention of you know, the fact that China is an important period of strategic opportunity, which used to be something that they were saying before. That meant basically you know, we can concentrate on building up our strength without serious disruption or external opposition. And here, what because of the disappearance of this formulation, um, we can see that the, the assessment of the environment, the, the, the kind of geopolitical environment is different. It's it's a moment when China cannot just keep a low profile anymore. It cannot self-strengthen without any opposition. They are rising uh, efforts to undermine its rise, to contain its rise, uh, to make sure that um, um, China is isolated. So it's a it's a, it's a reflection of a leadership that feels uh, both that. It, under under lots of external and perhaps internal pressures as well, but at the same time, not recognizing that um, some of those external pressures actually are the result of their own actions. It's like the world outside there is plotting against us, um, whereas I don't really see, personally, I don't really see how the last 30 years have been anything but trying to involve and welcome China and invest in China and helping with its development rather than thwarting it. But this is not the way that the party sees it, obviously. Right. Thanks, Nadej. Um, Bill, let me come back to you and pick up on, on what you began talking about a few minutes ago. Uh, the new characters who are now part of the Politburo Standing Committee who came out on stage um, at the end of the, of the Congress uh, last weekend, 
Um, tell us a little bit about um, about these new characters and, and sort of, you know, and, and it's thinking specifically about what Nadez just said, uh, do, do they uh, do they sort of embody this idea that, that they're under threat? There are all of these external forces that are kind of impinging on them. Um, I'm, I'm curious, especially if you can kind of give us some background on who they are, uh, their relationship with Xi Jinping, and what kind of um, sort of guidance or, or, or sort of um, counsel they might be offering him as China sort of looks out at these uh, turbulent waters all around. Right. I mean, it's quite a quite a collection of characters to have at the top of um, the world's second largest economy, uh, which considers itself to be on its way to becoming number one. Um, it's um, at a distance, it looks a bit more like the Imperial Household Agency of retainers than a um, uh, the sort of team that will give Hurley Burley a set of um, policy recommendations to their um, to their top leader. Of the of the six, uh, two of course uh, were held over from the last uh, Politburo stand, and um, among those or um, between the two, there's, there's Zhao Liji, the man who's run the anti-corruption campaign. This is a man who, like many others in Xi's um, entourage, um, has a, had a long, in his case, a connection from their sort of ancestral roots in Shanxi province, where uh, Xi's father is still revered as a kind of hero of the communist revolution and the early days of the People's Republic. Um, Perhaps the most um, intellectual of the of the lot, and the one who has the most international exposure, maybe the only one who has any kind of real international exposure, is this um, sort of tall, willowy character named Wang Huning, uh, who has been in the imperial court. He's been in the Chinese leadership um, circle uh, since the early 1990s when uh, Jiang Zemin, who was then the general secretary, newly named general secretary, uh, plucked him out of uh, Fudan University and, um, and brought him up to, uh, to, be, to Beijing to be a kind of um, in-house, I don't know quite what you'd call him, a kind of um, ideological uh, generator. He's the man who's come up with um, each one of these leaders' slogans, Jiang's three represents Hu Jintao's harmonious society, and now uh, Xi Jinping's China dream. Uh, he's a master wordsmith, um, and we know from his academic uh, career, uh, which included um, a sojourn in the United States, he found um, after traveling in the US, uh, it, this was in the 1980s, we were already then in terminal decline in uh, in Wang Huning's uh, view, and he seems to have held that uh, all these many, many, many years. So to the degree this standing committee has a kind of intellectual um, center, if in the, th in the sense that we think of an intellectual kind of generator of ideas and so on, uh, Wang Huning is probably it. Um, and of course, he's been there so long uh, that he, he he knows where uh, he, he knows how all of the party leaders would uh, would react here. So he's not a bad kind of um, a barometer for Xi Jinping if she knows how to use him. In the same way that Zhao Liji, having run the anti-corruption campaign, he has the goods on everybody. Uh, so he's a handy a handy guy to have in there. Of the other four. Um, uh, Li Chang, uh, Ding Xuexiang, Cai Qi, and Li Xi. Uh, these are hardly household names. Uh, they are to Xi, Xi Jinping, however, because they've been with him uh, in one guise or another for many, many years. Um, perhaps the longest serving Xi um, associate, who worked either with Xi or for Xi, is a Cai Qi this tall, bald man who has been the party secretary in um, in Beijing, but otherwise uh, not a very distinguished career and made a number of blunders even as he was directing um, the, the capital city in Beijing. Um, 
Of the others, Li Chang, uh, who is in his early 60s, um, is the former party secretary in Shanghai, um, and whose, again, career overlapped uh, Xi in Shanghai and in, in Zhejiang province before that. Um, and this is the man who's really been blamed for the costs of the COVID-19 lockdowns in, in Shanghai. So, but of course, in Xi's eyes, this shows him to be a, an absolutely faithful um, implementer of his, uh, of, of his master's uh, desires. Uh, Deng Xuexiang is a younger man. He's, he's the youngest of this group. He's 60. Um, and he's been Xi's private secretary, as he was to Xi's successors and, um, and other uh, associates. So he's a kind of private secretary's private secretary. And uh, the, the fourth of this, uh, the sixth and ranking last in the, in the hierarchy here, is a man named Li Xi, who also has old family connections to Xi Jinping, but has been most recently the party secretary in Guangdong. So he's had a bit of um, uh, exposure to the vitality of that province and particularly to Shenzhen, uh, which is the home base of so many of China's um, you know, most vibrant um, I, IT companies. Um, but within this group, you can see neither a potential rival to Xi uh, nor a potential successor uh, uh, to Xi. So this brings to quite to front of mind the questions about continuity in the party leadership as Xi himself begins to um, begins to, to falter. But as a group, these are not men um, who are, I think, going to give him sort of unvarnished, blunt advice. Um, they'll tell him what they what they think he wants to hear. And for for me, this is a sign, frankly, of of Xi's own personal insecurity uh, as uh, someone who needs to surround himself with a kind of loyal clack of, uh, of officials rather than someone who prizes the sort of give and take of, uh, of developing uh, policy ideas at a point in China's uh, growth trajectory where Goodness knows they need some pretty imaginative, sophisticated uh, thinkers to um, to come up with some new new directions for them. Um, let me follow this thread a little bit. Um, it, it, it's interesting, Bill, sort of hearing you describe what what seems like a, a Politburo standing committee that's now very firmly, you know, Xi's own handpicked group, uh, and it's it, it doesn't include members of some of the other factions we've seen within the party. Um, Nadej, I'd like you to kind of unpack this a little bit and then come back to Bill. But uh, you know, I'm curious then, well, what what will the other factions do? I mean, there's been talk in, 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 the, in the press and some of the commentary about the, the sort of Communist Youth League um, group has sort of been marginalized now. But but we know that there are other factions within the party. Um, have, have they really lost all their power or are they in a, in a position to bide their time and, and kind of take advantage of some future turmoil? Because I do want to sort of have both of your thoughts on, on this concept that Bill just mentioned here. Um, we're discussing, you know, the next five years, the next 10 years or beyond, you know, Xi Jinping as leader for life. Um, but as we all know, I mean, the, the vagaries of life are that people can suddenly get ill or they can suddenly pass away. And, and if we're in a situation where there's, Bill, if I'm hearing you correctly, no clear successor and, and maybe no sort of strong intellectual leader or driver within the Politburo Standing Committee, what does that look like if we jump forward a few years and, and some shock happens and Xi Jinping is to, uh, is, is uh, unable to function in the way that we're used to him functioning? I mean, do the, do the actions within the party begin to take advantage of that? What, is, what does that look like? Um, you, first. you know, I well, you know that I'm not a specialist of party elite politics. So just take what I'm going to say with a huge grain of salt. Uh, I think uh, bottom line is nobody knows because, you know, this is such a opaque box. Um, we don't know. We we're we're here, you know, commenting on a 
ceremony um, that is again very scripted and um, can have some surprises like the removal of Hu Jintao that has been you know very very much commented upon you know is he sick was it something to humiliate him is it symbolic of the old guard being taken away and Xi Jinping is the man and I mean yeah maybe it, it's one or the other maybe it's all of that you know the only person or people who know were in at the table there uh so and they are not going to explain it to us. So we're just left with conjectures and and it's it's very uh, complicated. So here's my personal take on this. And again, it comes not from a expertise background on, on these issues, but it seems to me like it it is not just because of uh, Xi Jinping's personal uh, skills and um, mastermind um, and masterful uh, machinations that he's come to this point. I think he has been chosen by the party apparatus um, on the corpse of Bo Xilai, which was not a small thing. Um, to do exactly what he is doing. Uh, and you know, the proclamation of party building, reinjecting calcium in the party's bones and uh, strengthening the control of the party. Why did the party as a collective body come to this conclusion? It's because the party thought that years of um, socialism with Chinese characteristics that had open windows and the flies that came within uh, with it with the the openness was starting to create dangers for the the party survival so when you were uh, you know you're facing uh, ideological problems uh, uh, you know all sorts of internal problems with with the way that you, the the discipline and corruption these are also things that are very prominent in 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 the party uh, in the report which is you know looking back uh, at the problems that the the party was facing before she came to power in terms of weakness discipline corruption low political consciousness all of that and now you know we have done a good job in in encountering these uh, malevolent trends that were undermining the, the party's uh, credibility, legitimacy, and survival. So um, I think he's been given a mission, and I think you know, yeah, maybe the 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 the, the young uh, the, the communist youth uh, league was some sort of an important faction before, but really, does it matter? It's it's really the party as a as an entity and as a unified entity that matters, um, and I think that she has delivered, and that's why you know he's got the vote the vote of confidence. It's not just because he's this you know super strong man who has so much power that everybody is terrified or that he can you know uh, overcome any difficulty. It's like Everybody wants him to be successful because what's right. the alternative? Right. Let me force you there. Bill, two things for you quickly. Do, do you agree with that assessment from Nadege? If so, because it's compelling, does this suggest, though, that, that whatever parts of the party that were inclined toward openness, some form of, of external engagement, liberalization in, in whatever limited forms, does this Congress really mark the end of that grouping's um, ability to uh, pursue that kind of uh, interaction with the world outside China. Right. Well, I think I think the day of our talking about party factions is probably gone. I mean, I just don't think that's a it, it's too rigid a notion um, to look at this this group of 96 million people, uh, most of the men, of course, as we know. 
Um, it really, when you get to the leadership echelons, you're really talking about a thousand shades of gray, uh, more than you are blacks and whites, let alone technicolor. And as Nader said, um, she must have had the nod way back in 2007, really, uh, when um, in the kind of informal, opaque, College of Cardinals mafia conclave sort of way these guys operate, um, he was clearly designated as uh, the successor to Hu Jintao. And remember, he was then appointed state vice president and he trotted out to 100 and more countries and was sort of given a bit of international veneer and, and so on. So, but for him to reach that point must have meant that all of the party elders who had a hand in the decision making. Many of them are now, well, many of them are dead. Uh, people, uh, others are in very ill health like Jiang Zemin and Zhu Rongji. But we did see at this Congress right up there in the front row, uh, those of those elders who were still mobile, um, Wang Jiabao, Li Lanqing, all of these uh, sort of blasts from the past, there they were on a kind of recognition of their authority in the in the party. So these people must all have um, supported Xi uh, at, at one point. And for the reasons Nadej mentioned, people realized the party had just gone too far. It was so corrupt. It was losing uh, the trust of the people, mandate of heaven, as you'd say in Chinese. And so she looked like someone who could clean things up, but not too much. And I think that's the that's where we are now. That um, uh, it's it's a kind of buyer's remorse if there if there is such a such a notion that he turned out to be um, more thoroughgoing, uh, more aggressive perhaps than they would have uh, thought back now. Gosh, 15 years ago about him having watched him come up through the through the operat of the um, uh, of the party. So. To come back to where this question started, really, what happens next? Um, it's a, it's a, it's an open question. I mean, and it's a, it, just our own difficulty in trying to envisage scenarios. I think gives a sense of the sort of political turmoil uh, that might come when she begins to uh, to falter. He certainly alienated all sorts of people, particularly among his own. Uh, sort of a cohort, if you will, the kind of princelings, the red red nobility. I mean, those have become some of his fiercest critics, those of them who've come into exile, uh, like Tai Chi, the woman from the party school who writes now in Foreign Affairs magazine. Uh, and the anti-corruption campaign has, um, <laughs> it's, it's, it, it's taken down a lot of, uh, a lot of people, uh, caused a lot of resentment, of all of those um, old boys whose cheeses got moved. And so um, I think there are people just waiting uh, for, for Xi to stumble in some way. But he's been so effective in mustering the security apparatus around himself that so far any opposition to him has just been uh, unable to organize, to coalesce in any, in any, uh, in any way that might threaten him. So it's interesting what I'm hearing you both say, and, and hopefully I'm getting this right. Um, she has achieved what he has because the party wanted him to achieve it. He may have gone further than the party wanted, and he may have been so successful with the anti-corruption campaign and the marginalization of some of these other power centers within the party that, that there's one question now, which is, can the party rein him in, or has he sort of superseded those constraints? But on the other hand, thinking about how Nadej started, the party itself has its own collective sense of where it's going. And whatever the shock is, whenever it happens, which we clearly don't know, you're, I'm, I'm hearing you sort of both argue that the party will find a way to navigate through that and continue to to direct China in the way that it has since 1949. Um, let me then take that as a starting point for a series of other quick questions for you. Um, and I want to come back to this idea of, of um, you know, foreign interference that she mentioned in the work report, um, you know, stormy waters, choppy waters, 
and, and actually sort of look at, at a particular body of water, and that's the Taiwan Strait. Um, and so if we think about this particular Congress, um, I've, I've read some things that, that really suggest, you know, there's a lot being made of, of Xi's um, descriptions of Taiwan and then the importance of Taiwan, uh, the threat of Taiwan separatism, uh, the challenges of external interference over Taiwan. And, and the inclusion of the phrase opposing Taiwan separatism in, in the party's sort of constitution. So um, Nadesh first, um, you know, thinking about how you've you've looked at Chinese foreign policy, but thinking about these specific um, descriptions of Taiwan that have emerged um, over the course of the Congress, what, are, what does that tell you about um, sort of China's potential attitude toward Taiwan and, and issues of uh, separation, unification in the coming years? The, the CCP doesn't consider Taiwan as a foreign policy issue. May I remind you, Michael? <laughs> uh, well taken. But, okay, but, uh, <laughs> but yes, it has some international components to it. Um, let's, let's remind ourselves that this document is fundamentally um a document in that allows the party leadership to talk to itself and its members across the country that's that's really what it is it's not a report that is meant for really foreign consumption um uh, although of course everybody is going to be interested in because we can maybe have some nuggets of where China is going to go in the next five years, so it's in, important for us to understand that. Um, regarding Taiwan, I I couldn't really see any major shift there. Um, I I believe it's it it still um, says something about the one country two systems. So, you know, clinging on this idea that uh, unification is going to happen in a way that will allow for some form of uh, autonomy for Taiwan. Is, and there's a, a sort of form of reassurance towards Taiwan to the Taiwanese people, too, because they said that um, their actions would be uh, um, very strict regarding foreign interference. But of course, this doesn't really it's it doesn't um it doesn't um involve the, the 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 Taiwanese people themselves so it's like they they they're trying to make that difference between the um international foreign forces and the Taiwanese people um so yeah, just it's it's just a reiteration of how important the uh, unification is because without territorial integrity, um, then they cannot the the China dream and the Great Rejuvenation cannot be achieved. So there too, you know, there are elements of continuity that are still very strong, and the, the changes are are very much at the margin. But I don't know what Bill. Um, yeah, Bill, I'm curious for your thoughts on that. I mean, on, on the yeah, I, I agree with 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 Nadez that the the language really hasn't changed very much. I mean, it's quite consistent with things that uh, Xi has been saying um, throughout his throughout his reign. What what struck me was that this again an endorsement of the one country two systems notion. Um, and this very stern warning about Taiwan independence have now been put into the party charter, uh, which is a kind of canonical uh, document, if you will. So in that sense, um, it's like putting Belt and Road Initiative in as a sort of signature policy of, of Xi Jinping. So I think um, there, uh, this uh, one of the phrases is resolutely opposed uh, Taiwan independence. That struck me as a quite explicit warning to Tsai Ing-wen, the president, and to anyone who will follow her, especially from her Democratic People's Party. Mind you, there's a Taiwan presidential election in, in January of 2024, so it's not that far, far off. And I think that's just a it's, it's a, it's a kind of more formal warning against the sorts of things that they 
<laughs> that they suspect Tsai Ing-wen really has in her heart of hearts. I mean, she's a Taiwanese from Tainan, and um, they have some sense of how that how that works. This um, reiteration of using the one country, two systems model, mind you, that's the phrase that turns up, I think, as early as the 1984 Sino-British Agreement on Hong Kong. And the, the phrase is attributed to Deng Xiaoping, Chen Chi-chun probably wrote it, but um, this model, um, the Chinese have reneged on in, in Hong Kong itself. I mean, they've even had spokesmen say that the Sino-British Agreement is essentially an invalid text uh, when it was notified to the UN and had you know that kind of that kind of stature. And of course, the 23 and a half million people on Taiwan, uh, they've seen what's happened in Hong Kong uh, these last several years. Uh, the last thing the last thing they're looking for is a one country, two systems model, as a Xi Jinping and his people define it. So that the notion of putting that into the party charter, I think, uh, is almost counterproductive uh, for the Taiwanese them, themselves. Thanks, Bill. Let, let me stay with you. Let me follow the thread of a system and thinking about China's system and the, the socialist market economy. Um, you know, she, in, in many of the, um, the speeches uh, over the week, was really emphasizing economic self-reliance. Um, you know, it seemed to be doubling down on things like the dual circulation um, theory and, and you know, uh, minimizing China's exposure to to the West for its own economic growth and innovation in the future. Um, also, lots of references to the idea of common prosperity, balanced growth. You mentioned this um, in, in your remarks earlier. Um, so, empty. I'm curious. Your thoughts on Xi Jinping and this new Politburo Standing Committee's ability to look at the, the, the sort of economic and social challenges that are facing China right now. Um, so still in, in a you know dynamic zero COVID strategy, frequent lockdowns of major cities across the country, um, slowing economic growth, uh, real estate crisis, uh, high levels of youth unemployment. How does this uh, leadership team that, you know, the party has anointed now and will take up new uh, official government positions next spring. Uh, how well placed are they, to, are they to grapple with some of the um, economic and social challenges that China is going to face in the, in the five to ten years ahead? Well, as you gather from my thumbnail sketch of the Politburo Standing Committee, this is not exactly a team of rivals or the best and the brightest. And while many of them, like Xi himself, have had experience in the in the Yangtze Delta and in the Pearl River Delta, so Guangdong and Fujian and then Shanghai, Jiangsu, Zhejiang, which are really the heartlands of entrepreneurial energy and innovation in China, um, it, it, they seem not to have been terribly affected by that. I mean, they know that this is what makes money, uh, but nonetheless, um, it, it's as if they've not really reflected on this and tried to think how do we how do we turn this experience into some kind of new economic growth model uh, for the country? Because it's quite clear that the model that they have used uh, really for 30 years now uh, of uh, growth in exports and providing the infrastructure, the whole ecology for an export economy that has made them the so-called factory of the world. With that on the one hand, and, um, and heavy infrastructure building, the highways, the ports, the high-speed railways, uh, which is in part buttressed that export economy, but also complemented the, the growth of the re uh, residential property market that you um, alluded to. That has pretty well run its course, and uh, productivity in this kind of economic model, uh, productivity growth has really slowed dramatically. And there's some economists who estimate that it now takes, on this model, it takes about four dollars of input to get a dollar of output. Well, you can't make money that way, and you can't uh, help China cross the, th the threshold of the 
uh, what economists call the middle income trap, um, where you need a much stronger uh, consumption led economy, not that CETA and his people haven't given lip service to that, um, but you know, you just look at Chinese, Chinese household savings rate are as high, if not higher than they've ever been, uh, which is a sign, I think, of people's sense of uncertainty about what the future will, will bring. And um, what she has done, of course, and particularly in the last 18 months or so, has provided one after another disincentive to private entrepreneurs. I mean, it's not just the high visibility uh, internet companies, the Alibabas and the Tencents and New Oriental Education, uh, they've all suffered. I mean, uh, more than a trillion dollars of book value have been lost with the so-called regulatory crackdown on those. And of course, their very prominent entrepreneurial founders, Jack Ma, most prominent of all, Pony Ma, and so on. These, these people have been quite marginalized um, and under the name of common prosperity, or perhaps in the sense of <laughs> saving their own skins, have, have, um, have made sure to donate, donate in air quotes here, vast sums of money for poverty alleviation and other of, um, of Xi's pet, pet projects. So within this Politburo Standing Committee, um, I just don't see where you'll find, um, th there's no John Kenneth Galbraith who's about to pop up and, and um, uh, you know, or, or uh, Ben Bernanke, any, any of these uh, uh, people whom you might uh, think of are reflective uh, and creative uh, policymakers. In the, in the broader Politburo, which we haven't really discussed at length here, but this, this other group, uh, 24, 24 men, not a single woman this time around, um, has, does have people who've, who have had exposures through the state economic sector. You know, there's a former uh, head of Norinco, the great defense industrial complex. There's a nuclear power, nuclear physicist and nuclear power expert. So these are, these are people who've seen perhaps more of the way the economy operates than uh, Xi Jinping and these people who've been clustered in the kind of party apparatus um, will, will have seen it. Um, but even those people, a very partial kind of slice of opinion. And there's I think many of foreign commentators, particularly Americans, have, have cited the loss of Liu He, who had been a vice president in government, uh, but who was a boyhood friend of Xi Jinping and um, whom she obviously trusted um, and who became, um, in the shorthand, uh, Xi Jinping's economic czar in his, uh, across certainly this, this second term. He's the man who talks to Janet Yellen and you know, he's a partly American graduate school educated and, and so on and thought for a long time to have been a sort of proponent of market reforms, uh, although he's clearly conformed to she's uh, view of things. But there's so there's there's no one of that caliber um, anywhere in this top echelon of the of the leadership. So real poverty of um of ideas, I think, as as well as a sort of a lot of blinkered experience, and uh, so it's a big, big open question whether they're going to be able to sustain anything like the kind of um, growth they've had in the in the past, gosh, thirty years now. Mm, interesting, Nadej. Let me come back to you with with a variation question here. Um, I think you mentioned. Uh, this emphasis on threats from within was, I think, the phrase you used earlier in the conversation as, as something that was um, emphasized in, in the, the, the work report and the speeches. Um, I'm curious for your take looking ahead on, on that, that issue of security domestically. Um, you know, the extent to which um, through the anti-corruption campaign over the last few years, the growth of the surveillance state, especially under uh, COVID conditions where you know, the, the apps on your phone essentially determine what you can and cannot do around the country. Um, what do you think the outlook for sort of that domestic uh, sort of social stability, political stability is within the country? Um, you know, whether you want to look at situations in Xinjiang or Tibet or just some of the, 
the protests that still do pop up across country, uh, cities around the country, you know, in relation to, to corruption or, or uh, environmental concerns. And that, that sense, though, of, of security being a mainstay, uh, and how does that how's that applied domestically for uh, for domestic security? I think the way that the party uh, thinks about security is mostly about its own security. Uh, you know, it's uh, th this this term, uh, this word, entrance security is associated in the report with basically any word you can think about, territorial, political, system, ideological, traditional, non-traditional, economic, energy, food, you, you attach all of these words with security. Everything is a matter of security. Why? Because the, the party feels that it has to face this crisis but and this paranoia um, and by the way, the, the, the national security law of 2015 um, defines security as the absence of international or domestic domestic threats to the state's power to govern. So that you know, means the absence of threat equals security. How can any you know, party or state achieve this aim? So. The inverse of that is the need for absolute control over everything, over all the sectors of life, uh, economic being one of them. And, and what Bill just described is really this attempt to reinsert the party within all you know, the, 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 the economic governance and, and control over uh, forces of production and and innovation and 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 um, and everything that pertains to to the economy, but it's also it's it's also about about control over population, uh, control over the party members first, and then uh, control over the entire population, and then I might add control over Chinese people who live abroad. Uh, and so this is the external effect of this uh, security. So it's a it's sort of an endless threat that um, uh, you know it's like the the dagger uh, in on, on the top of the party's head, which is even if it is an imaginary threat, it means that it's a it's a useful tool to um, put in place a certain amount of decisions um, that will help with the aggrandizement of the party's power. So it all revolves around, you know, how does the party get more powerful and stays in power and uh, everything is a threat. So we need to deal with them and, and quelch them as much as we can from wherever part they come from. Thank you. Um, we're getting close to time here, so let me um, ask you for your thoughts on one final question. Um, this was the party congress, which happens every five years. Um, we're five or six months away from the next National People's Congress. Um, Bill first and then Nadej, what are you looking for as, you know, what are you tracking yourself as you look at these next sort of five or six months? Um, as, as you look ahead to the National People's Congress, are there sort of indicators or signposts that you're looking for that will help answer questions you have about where the party or where China is going? Well, the National People's Congress, um, as we've been discussing, is sort of the venue in which a new government will be formed. Um, but the it's really a party state. There's not much. <laughs> I mean, people don't change their costumes when they move from the party Congress to the national peoples. It's the same guys. Um, and um, in addition, over the last, or well, really from day from day two of his term, uh, she has in effect devalued the governing apparatus. He's the the, the, the state part of party state. And, um, uh, you know, Jeremy Barmay's phrase that he's the chairman of everything. He's just pulled all of these 
<clears throat> functions that had once been assigned to the uh, state council and its ministries and the premier, um, Li Keqiang in that case, uh, pulled them all into his own orbit and to party organizations that he himself controls, often under the rubric of leading small groups. And he's now this man um, has masterminded the, the governance of a country that's six time zones wide and has 1.4 billion people uh, is anybody's guess, although he's written a book about it. Um, so what I would be looking for um, as this government is forms up and is announced in, in March, most likely of next year, uh, of course, who, who will become the premier of the state council, the sort of chief of chief of government, if you will, if she is considered chief of state. Um, and the odds are that it will be this man, Li Chang, uh, who is number two in the party protocol uh, hierarchy. This is the man who'd come from being party secretary in Shanghai. Um, uh, but if his uh, predecessor, who's now out, Li Keqiang, is any, any model, um, uh, Xi Jinping is not going to give this new man uh, much sort of ambit of, <laughs> uh, 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 of movement. Um, I would be um, focused on the government appointments sort of slightly further down the, uh, the, the, the chain of command here, and particularly the people who are going to be operating the you know, financial system, the People's Bank of China, the stock regulator, insurance regulator, finance ministry, uh, development and reform commission. This is typically where the very best and the brightest of, uh, <clears throat> of Chinese bureaucrats are. Um, and um, with this turnover of party officials, we've seen um, several of the really leading lights there um, now being put into retirement. Um, so particularly Yi Gong, who's been the uh, governor of the central bank, although not its number one, um, pro probably because he has a PhD from an American university, but he's a highly respected uh, international e uh, economist. Are they going to find somebody like that um, who can then project to the world a kind of expertise, which gives investors confidence in what the, you know, what the party's able to do? And above... Um, Above Yi Gang stood a man, uh, Guo Shuqing, who'd been in this business for years and years at financial regulation and so on, a, a man essentially trained by the World Bank. Uh, again, another kind of confidence-inspiring appointment. So uh, in the next, in the coming months, we'll see there'll be an economic work conference at the end of the year, if they keep to the usual pattern. That might be an occasion where some of these new figures will, will come out. In any event, a kind of transition team. Uh, will be shaping up in, in Beijing, and um, that'll be big enough that there should be a few leaks out of it on personalities come out of that. But I think that's where we should be uh, be looking at that ministerial tier of governance now. Right. Thanks, Bill. Nadesh, your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, it's the to me it's the you know the next five year plan uh, that will also be decided in March um, that will give us more indications about the economic direction of the country. But um, yeah, but as, as Bill mentioned, you know, it's a party state, but it's party above state. So what I'm mostly interested in in the meantime is uh, what's happening in the aftermath of the con party congress and those, you know, study sessions that are starting to happen where we're going to have also more indications about what the party tells itself. Um, and just as an illustration of that, uh, you know, when Xi Jinping came to power in, as um, secretary general in 2012, he took the Politburo to a motivational tour to the um, National Museum's exhibition on the rejuvenation of the nation. Uh, Road to Revival was uh, it was called. And uh, today he took them uh, the new Politburo to Yenan. Uh, so that is quite symbolic too in what this new era is, you know, one of the, the, the segments of the new era because Yenan was, uh, you know, in the Maoist period, it was really the, the, the time when after the Long March and before uh, taking 
uh, founding the PRC, the party was uh, basically in hiding, um, and but at, at the same time forming the basis for the new government and and the and its vision for a new society and a new man. So I feel like there's some sort of implicit message that Xi Jinping wants to give to the new Politburo here. Um, and I still don't know exactly what his vision for the new society and the new men uh, are. Um, and that's what we're going to discover very soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Bill, Nadej. This has been fascinating. Thank you both. Um, and thank you for listening to, to this episode of Asia Insight with uh, Bill McCahill and Nadej Roland, my colleagues here at NBR. Uh, we look forward to, to you joining us for future conversations on key developments in Asia's geopolitical and security environment. Asia Insight podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Thank you for listening to this episode of Asia Insight.